Uh, let's, let's pray together. God, what a powerful moment. Uh, thank you for uh, just so many lyrics we sang this morning that are true to your heart and your character and who you are. Just to be together as a church today is a, is a beautiful thing. God, I don't know all the emotions carrying some of the people in this room into Thanksgiving week. I, for some people, it's been the best year of our lives. For others, there may be a lot of pain and heartache. Uh, thank you for being the Lord over it all. And touch down in our lives today. Please, through the power of your spirit, speak through me so that Christ can be formed in our hearts through the word of my preaching. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Um, I believe that one of the greatest threats to Christianity in the 21st century is not threats from anyone outside of Christianity, but how people behave within Christianity. And I don't mean to use outside, insider language. Uh, but one of the greatest threats of Christianity in the 21st century is Christians who are misaligned or standing up for issues that they think may be the most important issues, but they're not the most important things to God. Or people who aren't passionate about the witness that we have to carry out in the world. Uh, so I want to take you just on a brief journey in my own life of how God has revealed pieces of his character to me and how I'm grateful for each one of them. Because I've also come to an understanding in my life that there are some things that God has yet to reveal to me because God knows I'm not at a mature place yet to handle all of it. God knows that there's nothing inside of me that can grasp how great and awesome and all the details of who he is. I can't get my mind around all of that. But I, I also think there are times where there are things God would love to reveal to me about his character and his nature. But I am not opening myself to God to allow more of him to fill me. I became a Christian when I was 10 years old. I was baptized into Christ in the first few years of my life as a Christian. And even before that, my appreciation and love for God as a Savior was something that we talked about at church a lot. I believe that Jesus came to save me. And, and part of how I came to believe Jesus as the Savior of my life is because I was confronted with my own sin in my life. Uh, uh, and I was confronted with sin in a way where I knew this was more than just me misbehaving or a mistake in my life, but that sin was something that separated me from God. It's something God did not frown upon, or that God did frown upon. And I, as I was confronted with the sin in my life, I knew that I came to a point where I could not save myself. There are no works in my life that could save me. I could not earn my salvation. I needed a Savior. And the first few years of my life as a Christian, my love for God was that God was a Savior, but then God began to reveal some other places and parts of who he is. And I began to see God is more than just the savior of my life. God wants to be the Lord of my life. And for the first six years of my life until the age of 16, I wanted God to save me. I knew if I died, I wanted to be in heaven, but I was not living like God was the Lord of my life. I wasn't living like Jesus was the Lord of my life. And it was about that time that he began to reveal to me how Jesus wants to be the Lord of my life and Jesus also wants to be the good teacher. I grew up in a church where we were really big on education. Uh, we're part of a heritage, Churches of Christ. We're not the only heritage out there in, in, the, in the Christian faith who takes education and Bible study really seriously. But I, rem I went to Sunday morning Bible class, Sunday morning church, Sunday night church, and then we had youth devos after Sunday night church every Sunday night. I went to Wednesday night church, and we also had a youth group Bible study throughout the week. And then I was engaged in FCA. I had probably eight Bible studies every week. And the Lord began to teach me that to be a good teacher is that God did not just want to shove information into my heart or into my mind. He wanted me to learn what to do with it. Application became really important to me. 
And as application became important, I began to see that God is a relational, he's a relationship seeker. He is seeking relationship with people. So as the first eight years of my Christian life, from 10 to 18, I began to see that God is a savior, a Lord, a teacher, a shepherd. He's a relationship seeker. And this began to press on my heart to where I had a burden for lost people because I knew at that point I had friends who were not connected to God. I went to church with people in my youth group who were not connected to God. I was playing football with people who were not connected to God. And God began to place on me the need to be a witness and to testify and that the good stuff he's placed inside of me is to be shared with the world. And God began opening doors for this to happen began surrounding me with other friends who were passionate about their faith. And we began to see and to witness revival taking place in that little city. Well, a big city right outside of Dallas where I grew up. I went to a public school of about 2,000 people. Before we graduated, we had a youth rally on our campus with over 400 people who showed up. I remember one day a kid came up to me, I played football with him, and said, Hey man, I feel like God is calling us to wash the feet of all of our teammates. And I said, God did not speak that word to me. <laughs> because I know what 17-year-old dude's feet smell like. I was like, God, he did not put that calling on my heart. He said, no, but Jesus, he washed, he washed the feet of disciples. And, and then Jesus says that we need to do like him. We need to wash the feet of our teammates and see what God is going to do. And I, and so I reluctantly agreed just to see what God would do. And I think even as we were about to wash the feet of 55 of our teammates, I could sense the angels in heaven looking over to God and being like, you're really going to let them do this? Like, uh, stop them. You know, this, is, this can't be good for anybody. Uh, and I just I began to witness friends who were coming to Jesus and dozens of people being baptized. Throughout my life, God began to peel open other parts of his heart and began to reveal to me other things of who God is. He, that God is one who cares for the poor and the oppressed. And this is stuff that really started messing with me in my early 20s that one of every 10 verses, 10% of the Bible is God reaching out to the poor and the oppressed. The gospel of Luke, one of every six verses deals with the poor and the oppressed. And if it's that close to the heart of God, then it began, it made me begin to wrestle in my own life. What does this mean for me and how I engage the poor and the marginalized and those who are on the fragments and margins of society and God began teaching me in the incarnation that Jesus became fully human. And, and this did so much for me in my life, especially in my late 20s and experiencing forms of grief, is that God is not just with us in the good times in life, but through Jesus, he teaches us. He's with us through those bad times in life too. He's in the valley with us, walking us through. For every single piece of how God has opened his heart and his character and his nature to me, I give God thanks. And I'm sure you're probably sitting out there thinking, well, there are other parts of my life where God taught me other parts of who God is. That God was a tower of refuge and strength or a, a good shepherd. And the list could go on because God is so big. And leading into Thanksgiving week, I'm just so thankful that God is so big. He's bigger than we could ever imagine. And, and though he's big as we could ever imagine, God is also willing to get so small so that he can connect with us in a way that really makes a difference in our hearts. So why would I not be grateful to God? All right, but being grateful to God can sometimes be a challenge, right? Uh, so uh, up until Friday, I was planning on preaching a sermon where I was going to unpack 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 for you, verse 16 through 18, where Paul talks about how we need to pray uh, unceasingly, always be praying, and you need to give thanks in all circumstances. I had the sermon ready for you, and on Friday, this does not happen to me much, on Friday I felt the Lord say, no, nope, that's not where I want. I want you to go into 2 Corinthians 12. I was like, God, it's Friday. All right. 
I like having sermons done by Thursday so I can read and pray through them and make sure I'm ready to go Sunday morning. You're kind of messing up my routine. And I thought the Lord said, yeah, but there's some people in your church who need to hear 2 Corinthians 12. I was like, but 2 Corinthians 12 is not a Thanksgiving text. And I felt the Lord say, Thanksgiving's only been around for a few hundred years, you know, like... There's, there's so much more. So 2 Corinthians 12. So then I start meth- messing with 2 Corinthians 12. And, and here's what it says, all right? And Paul had every reason in the world to be boastful. This is a guy who was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. Like he'd been studying the Bible since he could remember. As a young kid, he, he knew the Bible. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, we had the 66 Club. And all the kids wanted to be part of the 66 Club. It's when you could recite all 66 books of the Bible. You had the Old Testament song, the New Testament song, and we would wear these buttons with such pride. You know, we knew the 66 books. Paul probably knew what the New Testament wasn't written, but he probably knew all 39 books. He knew them. He had studied them. He could recite them. He was passionate about who God was. He was a guy who had been anointed by God, converted by God, and performed miracles for God. And even in 2 Corinthians 12, he boasts about being taken up into the heavens, having these revelations that were so glorious he couldn't even share like the details of them. Had every reason to boast, but he's writing to this church in Corinth. And many people say that Paul probably wrote seven letters to the churches of Corinth. It was a church he knew really well. He knew him inside and out. He planted the church, loved the church, wanted to nurture the church. But the church sometimes had uh, times when they just didn't think much of Paul. So he writes Second Corinthians, the whole book, in, in a way to almost like give a resume. Like, look, here's what I've done. Here's who I am. Here's why my ministry matters. And you get to Second Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 7. And here's what Paul says. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh. A messenger of Satan to torment me. And three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But, but God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And therefore I will boast all the more gladly. Some of your versions, therefore I will rejoice. Like I will give thanks about my weaknesses. So that Christ's power may rest on me. And that is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Uh, There are a lot of weaknesses represented in this room. And Paul does not write in a way where he says, I am dwelling on my weaknesses, or that I'm being defined by my weaknesses. It's that I am going to connect with God in a way where I put my weaknesses in their proper place. That God's power shines brightly, not through our successes, but through our weaknesses. I'm going to boast in them. And what does it mean for us to bring all of our weaknesses, whatever that may represent in your life, under the sovereignty and the power of God, believing that God can use them and work through them to bring glory to his name? There's a a rabbi, and he was asked to speak at a conference. And he went to this conference and stood up in front of people, and the sermon he preached was this, one line. He stood up in front of people and he said, It is enough that a human being is alive. And he walked off the stage. And I wonder if they still gave him an honorarium check, you know? Like, we gave you 45 minutes, dude. You spoke one line. It is enough that a human being is alive. And somehow we should find joy in that. 
Okay, so here's the deal. I think Paul is able to write what he did in 2 Corinthians 12 about weaknesses and boasting in, in his weaknesses so that the power of God could shine through and even rejoicing in those weaknesses. Paul had de- developed in his life this discipline of gratitude. And his discipline of gratitude was not because he was a, a Christian. Follow me here. It's because Paul was a good Jew. And to be a good Jew meant that you had disciplines of gratitude in your life. Um, I had heard, I read a story not too long ago. There's a famous uh, violinist, Peltman, Canadian. He's in his 70s now. And when Peltman was a younger child, he was struck with polio. And to even get out on stage to perform concerts, is, it's a great feat just for him. He, he has braces on his legs. He walks with crutches. So just to get to center stage is really hard. And he, there was a concert he was performing years ago. And he got out on stage, got to center stage, sat down in his chair got his violin ready, began to play. And within just the first few moments of this concert, one of his strings popped. Sounded like a gunshot. And the whole thing stopped. And it was so early in the concert, he could have walked off stage, fixed his his violin, came back out, and then performed the rest of the the event, all of his pieces. But instead, he sat there and he looked at the conductor and motioned for the conductor to continue playing the music. And what he did the rest of that concert was breathtaking. That he went on to perform with just three strings on his violin. And he tried to fix the notes using those three strings. And where he couldn't, he began to rearrange music in his head throughout the rest of this concert, like rearranging this piece. So here he is on stage and people are witnessing passion and artistry and creativity. A lot of times in life, when you witness what artists do, you get the finished product. You see them uh, with the song that's already been completed or the painting that's already on the wall. Rarely do we get to see an artist like creating and, and rearranging right there in the moment. And the rest of the concert was like that. He had to rearrange pieces in his head, making sure it all fit together and held together and when it was over he finished his last piece and there was this silence the room people were stunned they were shocked they couldn't believe what they had just witnessed and then there was this great applause and after the applause he stood up and a lot of times artists don't do this they don't talk at the very end they walk off the stage they just let their piece speak and he stood up and he motioned for silence and he said this you know it is the artist's task to make beautiful music with what you have left. It's the artist's responsibility to make beautiful music with what you have left. And people have gone on to debate, was he referring to his violin or was he referring to his physical health? That wherever we are in life, God's not through. And you may not have the same energy you used to have, But whatever it is we have left, we're going to play it to the glory of God. Um, So Paul practiced gratitude as a foundational piece of his life. And let me me tell you why this was so important to Judaism. And I'm going to give you a few things. Feel free to write these down. You may not write down the Hebrew words because you may not know how to spell them. But there there are a few. Gratitude was something that was taught in, in the Jewish faith at a very young age. 
what it means to be grateful and live a grateful life. There's a phrase that mode ani, and here's what it means. You may write this down, upon waking. So Jews are taught that upon waking, you give thanks. Now, for Christians, there are a lot of times I speak in front of groups, and especially when I'm talking about prayer and connecting to God, something I encourage people, especially in the 21st century, is that you need to reach for God in the morning before you reach for your phone. And a lot of times it's our phone that has the alarm on it, so it's waking us up, and then we hit that, and then we immediately begin searching email or Facebook or Instagram and all that other stuff. You need to reach for God before you reach for a phone. Up on waking, you give thanks. That before you begin asking God for anything or to bless your day or watch over you, watch over your family or keep people safe, before any of that, you give God thanks that this is a new day. God's mercies are new this day. God is not taking this day off. God is here. Another discipline that the Jews practice is hakaret hatav, which is recognizing the good. This doesn't mean that you have to be a person who sees a glass half full, but it does mean that in a world with so much bad and evil that's put right in front of our faces all the time, it's good for us to recognize the good. For you to recognize the good in life, sometimes you've got to take a step back. You've got to take a deep breath. You have to have this disciplined time with God. Okay, God, remind me today, what is it that is good? What is it about you that is good? What, is it, what good are you doing in the world? Uh, because what happens is there's no limit to what we do not have in life. And gratitude cannot exist with arrogance and greed and selfishness. And this is so true in a season like this where every commercial you see is a commercial saying, hey, if you don't have this by Christmas... Your life is not going to be good. You're not going to have pleasure. There's not going to be joy and happiness. I had a conversation with my boys the other night. We were, we were laying in bed. And uh, we were talking about poverty. And uh, turning, like I was like, man, the, the reason, like my mom, your mom and I, we don't want to raise you to where you think that you need more toys and more things for you to have pleasure and in life, we, we don't want you to be raised like that. We want you to value things that are more important. And, and my boys were honest. They just looked at me and they're like, Dad, but when we watch commercials, it's so hard. Because we see the commercials. And my youngest, Noah, he's eight. He's like, Dad, I know, but I see the commercial. And I'm like, I just need it. And it needs me. And we need each other. I'm like, I know, man. I get it. I get it. We don't need all those things in life. It's not what brings us ultimate pleasure and satisfaction. So what is good? And often having this discipline of gratitude of what is good, recognizing the good, orients our hearts in the right kind of way. There's also this phrase, gamzale tova, which means this too is for the good. This is those specific things that happen in your life or throughout a day or week or seasons in life. When there's pain and heartache or bankruptcy or loss of job or stress in the job and, and to be able to sit back several times a day and to say, this too is for good. It doesn't mean God orchestrated all of this, though there are times where God does give us a thorn in the flesh. But that this too is good. Somehow, some way, God's going to reveal his goodness through this. God's going to bring goodness out of this. So gratitude developed in the heart of Paul and the life of Paul because he was raised a Jew, but coming to know Jesus and being filled with the Holy Spirit only intensified and amplified the gratitude in his life and the gratitude he wanted to hand on to the church. That the very thing we just took earlier, the bread and the cup, for 2,000 years has been known as the Eucharist, which is giving thanks. That we develop these disciplines of God, I'm giving you thanks. When it comes to gratitude, 
What gratitude does is it lifts our eyes up. It lifts our eyes to God because gratitude begins with God. Gratitude gives us perspective in life. And gratitude also helps us to, um, to, to anticipate. Gratitude is about anticipation of what is to come. So I titled this sermon, Healthy Gratitude. Because I think there's a healthy gratitude and there's some gratitudes that are not so healthy. And I think early in my preaching life, I preached some sermons right around Thanksgiving where the sermons would basically go, this week, uh, you need to set aside the hurt and pain and brokenness of your life and be grateful for all the things God has done. And I don't think that's healthy gratitude. Healthy gratitude is the ability and a heart that is willing to hold together the good and the bad, the joy and all the pain, and to hold it together and still say, God is good in the midst of all of this. His goodness is over it and around it and through it. And as we develop uh, disciplines of gratitude, which I often encourage people, can you take two minutes a day where you do nothing but give thanks to God? Two minutes a day where you don't ask God for anything. You just thank God for his character and who he is and what he has done. Gratitude lifts our eyes up. Gratitude gives us perspective. Gratitude creates anticipation because what gratitude does is what God has done in the past is what God is still going to do in the future. So uh, a lot of times, even today, as we had some prayer times where it's like, man, what are you grateful for? You're probably thanking God for what God has done or a relationship or an event. But we're also anticipating what God's going to do in 2018 and beyond. So as a church, what we've done is December 17th, this is 28 days from today. We're going to call this a day uh, of baptism and recommitment. And we have done a couple of these. And what we're anticipating leading up to December 17th is that God's going to save people and God's going to bring some hearts that have been dry and cold for a long time. He's going to bring them to life. The next 28 days, you have elders, a minister, a staff member at Sycamore Views fasting and praying every single day, an unbroken chain of prayer and fasting from the leaders of this church, asking God for revival in hearts and for salvation to come to people. Uh, and... Sometimes what happens is this. Some, some of you in this room have yet to make a decision to commit yourself to Christ, to trust in Christ as the Savior of your life. And sometimes what you need is a date on a calendar where you know people are praying for you, that God will connect with you and invite you into his heart, and you need a date to work towards. So in a couple of weeks, we're going to have two different Sundays where we give you a chance to respond on a card, where a baptism is something you're thinking about, or recommitment is something that you need in your life, that there will be a way for you to fill that out so that we can follow up with you and pray and study and talk and discuss. I've shared with you before, one of the first baptisms, uh, first people who asked me to baptize them, I was actually at a church camp, and we were baptized in a river. And um, this kid came at 1.30 in the morning and knocked on the cabin where I was staying. And they asked me to come out, so I went out there, and this kid, he was a little younger than me, wanted me to baptize him in the river. We got in a church van, we drove down to the river, we packed into one of those 15-passenger church vans, drove down to the river, the lights were shining down on the river where we would baptize people. It's where you would walk in. And when we did that, water moccasins took off swimming from the baptism spot. And this is where, I mean, I joke. I mean, it's true. Like, there are times you're like, I mean, really, is immersion that important? Can't we just sprinkle? Like, so, you know, uh, and, and you start questioning all these things. I'm like, dude, water moccasin just swam from there. Uh, and then it hit me, you know, the Bible never talks about someone having to have their hands on somebody to baptize them. You know, it's not a command. Like, so I was like, dude, just, <clears throat> you go in the water, 
I'll make a little statement out here, man. When I put my hand down, you go under. Whenever you want to come up, you decide when you want to come. If you go down right there, what better way to die than dying with Jesus right there, all right? And there have been times I baptized people in rivers or I baptized people at midnight out in the middle of lakes or we had to walk out in the lakes and, you know, you're walking to all this slimy stuff, fish are going by you and there are times. And here's the deal with Christianity. First 300 years of Christianity, they didn't have baptistries like what we have, like how we have baptistries. We're back behind this screen. We have a baptistry and it's some warmer water in there because that's how we do it in America. We like salvation, comfort, right? And... I mean, the first few hundred years was, man, rivers and lakes and streams, and there was theological significance to it. People were encouraged to be baptized in moving, living water. And I'm not suggesting that we put snakes in this baptistry, all right? I don't know how many baptisms we would have. I do want people to understand that baptism is dangerous because it's adventurous. And the most important question in your life is not, how do I become a Christian? It's, how do I become like Christ? The most important question for Christians is not, how did you become a Christian? It's, how do you begin to live like you are one who is following the example of Christ? So on December 17th, we're having a baptism Sunday. And if those of you are, feel a touch of God and a move of God, it's not like we're going to deny baptism from you until the 17th. But it gives us something to work towards. So for you in the room who have given your life to Jesus, maybe the question for you is who is the person that you need to invite into the heart of God or to church over the next few weeks in anticipation of December 17th? But we've decided to make this not just a baptism Sunday, but also a recommitment Sunday. And this is not a chance for people who have been baptized to be baptized again. Um, this isn't... Uh, what this is about recommitment is... There, there's some of you, it's just time for you to get, go to a deeper place with God. Because maybe it's been months, years, or decades since you've decided to take a, take a bigger step, a riskier step in your life and with faith. And a lot of times we wait until January to have like these fresh starts. But I felt like the Lord was really speaking to me about a month ago saying, don't wait until January. Give people something at the end of the year, a way to think back on the year and to make some decisions in their life before they get to a new year. Make some decisions now. So for those of you who are in need of God waking up your heart, moving you out of a place of apathy and into a place where you're thriving with God, we're working up to December 17th for baptism and recommitment. And we're anticipating just the movement of God. So for this violinist who stood up on stage, performed with a broken string, and said that the task of an artist is to play whatever you have left. I mean, this week, whatever you have left, whatever energy you have, whatever breath you have, even as you engage some family members that you really don't like, may we go through this whole week as people connected to God, grateful to God, clothed in the righteousness of God, all for the glory of God. If there's anything we can do for you, will you, uh, the shepherds and prayer leaders, will you go to your places? And before we stand, I want you just to see where some of our leaders are if you need them for prayer. If there's something we can do for you as a church, you can feel free to come forward. 
and we will receive you here. If there's someone here who this is the day for you to trust Jesus as the Savior of your life, come up here. Rick Gillespie's to my right, and he is here to receive you. Let's stand together. Let's sing this declaration.